0: Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. When the Spirit of God falls, there are suddenly no experts in the room. We all become little children, novices, novices. And if you can sit in an environment where God is pouring out and you still hold to your status as an expert, then you're like Jacob who awoke at Bethel and said, God was here and I knew it not. You were immune to what was going on in the room. I don't care how much you have in God, how much history. I've had the great privilege, the honor uh, of being in revivals for a number of revivals over the years and have even had the privilege of leading a few. But I'm going to tell you, when God shows up, all of a sudden all that goes out the window and it's just like, Lord, let's get low. And uh, Lord, we just want to go with you. And so here's been my concern. I was talking to my 17-year-old. We were driving uh, after Wednesday night going home and we were talking about this. And and I said, you know, I said, Nathaniel, we've w- this church has had a reputation of being... Uh, in some people's mind the revival church some people's mind a revival church in the region and I know there's others there's others that are contending don't, don't misunderstand me uh, there are different callings on different churches but the calling of this house is we are crying out for a breakthrough uh, the spirit of God to fall on this nation uh, I, I'm not saying that every church should do that they're responsible for their calling and I bless them to do it but that's our calling the danger of having that reputation and the danger of having tasted some things in the past is that we can arrogantly assume that when God moves, of course, he's going to move here. And our history can actually produce in us an apathy born of uh, this assumption that, well, God, surely God's going to do it here. And that posture is the wrong posture. We need to go low and say, God, I've just had this thing going through my heart of blind Bartimaeus, where he stood on the sidelines. He said, Son of David, do not pass me by. The Lord walked right by blind Bartimaeus. And others wanted a touch, but they were not willing to violate decorum. They wanted to look proper. But blind Bartimaeus, he was a desperate man, and he screamed out, Son of David, do not pass me by. And people rebuked him, said, Calm down, you're embarrassing yourself. Just calm down. What did he do? He yelled all the louder, and Jesus turned back around and said, "What do you want from me?" He said, "I want to see." And we need to have this heart cry whenever we're here of God moving. We need to do two things: rejoice and bless what God is doing, but then cry out, "God, if you're going to move, don't pass us by, Lord. Don't forget us. I don't want to have the arrogance that just because." We talk about revival, we've had revival, we've prayed for revival, that we assume that will be the next place that God's gonna break out. I wanna see God break out everywhere. I'm not praying for church revival. I'm praying for national and international revival. And I, I was telling someone the other day, I said, man, the Lord challenged me a number of years ago when I first became the pastor of this church. We were fasting and praying and contending for a move of God. And the Lord asked me, he said, What if I answer your prayer by visiting the church across the street? What if I answer your prayer about visiting a church that's criticized you in Des Moines? Are we willing to humble ourselves and go and drink from a stream that we don't necessarily agree with? And that doesn't agree with us? There was a name that that he... uh, Heard there was a prophet in Israel and he needed a healing. And he went to the prophet and he said, you know, would you pray for me? He said, go, go dip in the River Jordan. And he felt there was this arrogance within him. He said, we have cleaner streams in our own nation. We have cleaner rivers. Sometimes God will take you to a stream of Christianity you don't fully embrace. Sometimes he'll take you to a river that you don't fully agree with just to test your humility. Many of you know who Randy Clark is. By the way, we're going to be hosting Randy again next year for a healing school. And uh, Randy is, is one of the heroes of the faith in this, this hour of human history. He really is. He's been tremendously used by the Lord. But Randy used to have a real prejudice against the Word of Faith movement. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of prejudice against the Word of Faith movement. Whenever you hear someone talking and they spit it out, the prosperity gospel, they're usually talking about those who believe that the kingdom of God also affects your livelihood. There is an effect on wisdom. It's not just, we're going to get into a whole different thing here. Three manifestations of the spirit of God in your life are wisdom, power, and love. Most of us as Pentecostals, we always want to talk about the power element. And that's real, and that's that's important. It's Acts chapter two, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's a real deal thing. Now that power is both internal and external. Internally, it's the ability to live a holy life. That's the holiness stream. That's the way they preach it, and it's right. And then there's the Pentecostal stream, external holiness for ministry to give it away. And you know what? That's right, and it's scriptural. They're just, neither one of them are the whole picture. And even if you merge both streams together, it's not the whole picture. Because there's also this love stream. Romans chapter 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Much of the missions movement has been impacted by the love of God. The last move of God some 25 years ago, whether it was out of Brownsville or out of Toronto, was an outpouring of the Father's love. And we need that. We need the supernatural ability to love beyond our means. Amen. I don't need to, Man, if I'm trying to live within my capacity to love, we're all in trouble. Anybody that's in the wake of my relationships is in trouble. I need the Lord to make up the difference. I need to walk in His love. And there is a supernatural impartation of love that's available to us. But there's also a supernatural accessing of the wisdom of God. A spirit of wisdom and revelation. And make no mistake about it, that wisdom helps you to be a better dad, a better mom, a better employee, and a better employer, and more financially adept because the wisdom of God can fall upon you so that you can become a source of supply for others. And when people begin to talk about When when they degrade someone because they believe that God also operates supernaturally through finance, some of the people that have been criticized the most for their messages on supernatural finance are some of the most generous people in the kingdom. Let me step out on some thin ice for some of you this morning. You know, Kenneth Copeland gave literally tens of millions of dollars to Reinhard Bonnke alone. Reinhard Bonnke would do crusades in Africa. They would have over a million people show up at one service. They would literally have flatbed trucks for the altar call. They would load people up on trucks as far as the eye could see and drive them to the front. Waves of healing would go out over the crowds. You can't gather a million people with the sound systems and the trucks and all the the logistics without a lot of money. And a lot of that money came through a man named Kenneth Copeland. Now, do I agree with everything that Kenneth Copeland has taught over the years? No. But you know what? I don't agree with everything Dave Olson has taught over the years. <laughs> and so we've got to be really careful because that man operates in a, in a wisdom from heaven. People, people point, let, let me just, as long as I'm on this ice, let me just say it. People criticize Joel Osteen. Do you know that he does not take a salary from his church? Do you know that furthermore, he is the largest giver in his church? And that church gives millions and millions of dollars away? Now, do I agree with everything Joel Osteen has taught? No. But again, there's a pastor here, the lead pastor. I don't agree with everything he's taught over the years either. I've had to talk to him and have some... You know, I have to sit him down and correct him over the word at times. And so we just, we just need to be careful. I don't know how I got into that. But the... Uh, what was that? Randy Clark. Randy Clark. Thank you, John. <laughs> Reel it in. Okay, Randy Clark. Randy had a real beef with the Word of Faith movement. And Randy was... He was, he was a Southern Baptist that became a vineyard pastor. He was pastoring in St. Louis. And he would get up in front of his church Sunday after Sunday, and he would greet the visitors. Well, welcome to church this morning. And by the way, if you're one of those name it, claim it, blab it, grab it people, we're not the church for you. There's the door. It's up the street. And his wife would say, Randy, you can't say that. But Randy had an issue in his heart with those people. Randy has become very dear friends with some of the leaders within the Word of Faith movement in recent years. You know what the Lord told him? He heard about a move of God through a man named Rodney Howard Brown. And the Lord said, if you want a fresh touch, you go to Ramah, the citadel of the Word of Faith movement. Amen. He said, you go and dip in that stream. And in Randy's mind, that was a River Jordan. It was a muddy stream. But the Lord said, you go there if you want a fresh touch. And so he went to Raymond and sat in the service. And every chance he got, he would have Rodney Howard Brown pray for him. Rodney, I think, prayed for him three or maybe four times. The last time he prayed for him, Randy said his hands just became like ice. And Rodney said, pray over everything that moves. It broke out in his church, then regionally he went to Toronto for a weekend meeting that, la- that re- turned into like 10 years of revival, out of which came Heidi Baker and Leif Hetland and a bunch of lesser known names. He received a fresh impartation in a stream he disagreed with. I tell you what, we've got we've to go low, and if God is going to move in a church that I don't fully agree with theologically, you know what, that's God's business. He knows more than I do. And we need to humble ourselves and go low and just say, Lord, we bless what you're doing, God, wherever you want to move, but Lord, in the process, don't pass us by. Let's not assume, but let's go low and let's stay hungry and let's bless what God is doing. Now, I I had uh, planned on, on teaching on something else and. What we, we've been talking about, we're going to jump back in this, uh, God willing, in a couple, couple more weeks. Uh, but this morning, I, I woke up, I always get up early on, well, I don't get up, I wake up early, pull the blanket over my mouth and start to pray, P- pull the blanket over my head. And uh, I woke up and the Lord began to minister to me out of a passage that I'm very familiar with, but I haven't talked on in some time. And so I was shocked when, they, when the words went up on this last song, uh, talking about, sing, O barren woman, sing, O broken man. Man, I love that. Sing, O barren woman, sing, O broken man. And the Lord began to talk to me about barrenness. So I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. I believe the Lord has something he wants to speak to us about. We are living in a very, very unique time in human history. Decades from now, we'll look back at this as one of the most tumultuous, transformative seasons in human history. We are in an epic shift. And on the other side of this thing, the boundary lines in so many areas of life will have fallen in new places. Spiritually Nationally, internationally, there's, there's just a lot of things that the Lord is doing. And in those seasons of epic shift, God needs to position his people. There are, there's a need for people who hear real clearly. In an hour of transition, God needs transition, men and women. People who will usher in what God is doing. In those seasons, the prophetic gift becomes Especially important. The the famous verse many of us are familiar with. It says, um, The sons of Isaacar who understood the times and therefore knew what they should do. How many of you are familiar with that verse? Talk about the sons of Isaacar. There was a tribe, the, the Isaacar, the sons of that tribe, they it says that they had a unique sense of what God was doing and therefore knew what they should do. So there's this prophetic element to their their sensibilities, and they knew where they're to throw their strength. The context of that was that there was a shift from the Saul regime to the Davidic regime. That it was a leadership change, and conventional wisdom, uh, national protocol would have dictated that they get behind the son of Saul because he was the inheritor of the throne. But they sensed what God was doing and they threw themselves behind the house of David and they lent their strength because why? They had a sense of what God was doing. And so there was an epic shift. There was something going on. And we see this again and again, the the prophetic rising in these times, these, these chapter turns, these hinge moments of human history. And Samuel was one such man. Samuel was a hinge man. He was a transition man in human history. He was the man who oversaw the epic shift from prophets to kings. That was a big deal. But not only from prophets to king, he was the last of the ruling judge prophets, and he initiated the royal lineage in Israel, crowned Saul, and then also oversaw the even bigger shift from the Saul regime to the Davidic regime, and literally ushered in the royal lineage that you and I sit under, that of King Jesus, the son of David. And it was because Saul was a man who heard the word of the Lord. And when there are shifts in what God is doing, it's essential that there are people that can hear clearly so that we can throw our strength behind what God is doing. One of the great fears of my life is that I get stuck backing what God used to be doing. It's not a bad thing. It's just not the now thing. I want to be in what God's doing right now. I want to make sure that I'm about my Father's business, that I am doing what I see the Father doing and I'm saying what I hear the Father saying. We don't want to be yesterday's man. There's a great book called The Anointing written by R.T. Kendall. He and Papa Jack were dear friends. We we need to have R.T. come in sometime. But he, was taught, he wrote this book on the anointing, and it was based on one verse. He was reading one day, and it was something the Lord spoke to Samuel. He said, he said, how long will you weep for Saul? Because Saul had been deposed. He still occupied the throne on earth, but he'd been rejected by heaven. So now he had the responsibility of the king, but the anointing of the king had left him. That's a horrible place to be. He said, fill your horn with oil, for I have found a man after my own heart. That man was a young teenage boy by the name of David. But God already saw something in him he could use. And so RT got a flash of insight, and this is the way he framed it. The Lord framed it to him, and he wrote a book on it. that Yesterday's man, today's man, and tomorrow's man yesterday's man was Saul, the man who once was what God was doing but had forfeited and disqualified himself. Then there's today's man, the man who stands between and has to hear the voice of the Lord and say, we're gonna get behind the next thing. This thing, this this space between waves, between the purposes of God. God God does things in history. And as one wave is cresting and hitting the shoreline, God is mounting another wave at sea. And we want to be those who understand what he's doing and throw our strength behind it. And then you have the Davidic regime, tomorrow's man. Saul had a throne but no anointing. David had anointing but no throne. That's very frustrating as well. Not quite as frustrating as Saul's situation. And then there was Samuel, who had to go against protocol and even endanger his own life by siding against a man that he considered a son in the faith. Saul, who he had anointed as king, but had drifted from the Lord and turned his back on the things of God. And he had to, he grieved it, but the Lord said, your grieving is done. It's time to get on into the future. And he had to go find David. And he anointed David. Saul was a very key character. And I believe this story is relevant to this hour in human history. Because I really do believe we 're in between seasons in the Lord that there are things the Lord did in the past, and now there 's fresh things emerging and i 'm not even talking about just revival and on a that 's more of a micro scale i 'm talking on a macro scale in human history. We are entering a new era, not the last time, but the time before that Leif was with us. He brought a message that I believe was more prophetic than many of us realized. It was a teaching. And he talked about the difference between a multipolar and a unipolar world. And he talked about the unipolar world of Pax Americana, American peace. And how we've enjoyed this season of peace as a nation, but now there is a battle for the thrones of the earth right now. And we're entering into a, unip- a, a multipolar world where there's there's several different nations that are vying for ascendancy. And I believe the intercessors will determine who who ends up in that place. These are very key times, and the prophetic is essential in those, in those seasons. I was how, how many of you did anybody catch Dean Briggs and Lou Engle yesterday on their? I tell you what, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to Dean and I'm gonna ask him to, when he comes here in a few weeks, to bring that message on communion. It rocked my world. It was so bad that I was struggling keeping on track with what the Lord had spoken to me because I started listening to it this morning and I got pulled into it. It, uh, but it was a powerful word. One of the things they brought out in this conference was this: that America, that the the church in America has had the privilege the the, the luxury of living from a peace perspective, both missions and the intercession movement, the prayer movement and the missions movement. We've pretty much been able to go wherever we wanted as Americans. The doors swung wide, and there's something shifting in the earth right now. And we're entering a wartime mentality whether you realize it or not, one of them said this, they said, many thought that abortion was the giant that David had to fight and that we brought the giant down. I think it was Matt Lilly, he said, I truly believe that abortion was merely the lion or the bear and the real giant is China. I believe he very well may be right. And we need to be like the sons of Isaacar who understand the signs of the times and therefore know what we should do. The thing about the the privilege of being a prophetic people is we begin to pray into the crisis before it rises. We begin to pray into the problems before they emerge. It's like the New Testament church where... uh, was it Agabus, gave the prophecy of a coming famine so that church was already able to take up offerings before the famine hit so they could provide an answer before the problem arose. They were already positioned. And we need to be that people. So real quick here, I'm getting like you're the one keeping me from it. Come on. Okay, let's read in chapter one. There was a certain man of Ramathaim. Zophim. Just say it real fast, and it'll sound like you know Hebrew. Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraim, Ephrathite. Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. I love the poetic nature of this passage. is so beautiful. And if you read it like it's written, there are, there's this prophetic poetry that he culminates his comments. There's so many little punchlines here, and this is one of them. And Peninnah had children, and Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year after year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Let's just pause there. That is a troubling statement. The anointed Inspired word of God states clearly that the Lord Himself had closed the womb of Hannah. It wasn't that they were seeing this wrong and they were speaking culturally and just didn't understand what we now understand in the New Testament. The the text is clear God had closed this woman's womb. And her husband, he loved her, and so he would give her a double portion when they would go up to worship. Verse six, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So we have this scenario. This man this man had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had a bunch of kids. Hannah had none. Uh, Elkanah loved both his wives but there was a unique affection he had for Hannah precisely because she hadn't produced any children and he knew how hurtful this was to her. And it was during the time of worship that that thing would really rise up and it was that unique time when they would go to the temple of the Lord or the the, the tent of the Lord to worship that Peninnah would grievously irritate her and provoke her precisely because she had no children how hurtful and she was questioning there was as you can imagine see in our culture it's it's hard enough when you want children and you have not been able to bear children but in that culture It was always attributed to a spiritual thing, and I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying that from that cultural perspective. In this situation, it's very clear, God was the one who closed her womb, and in that culture, they looked at it as a spiritual thing, and it became an identity issue for the woman. Elkanah, knowing that, would give his wife a double portion, and his heart hurt for her. And listen to what happened. So Peninnah would provoke her, and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. As often as she went to the house of the Lord, she she used to provoke her. I find it interesting that it was in the secret place, it was in the place of worship that that provocation would rise. And I believe there's a spiritual lesson for each one of us in that, that little observation. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Hannah's response was she would lose her appetite. She would fast, but it wasn't a a fast of choice. It was almost imposed upon her out of the grief of her own heart. And she would weep and not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? And then he would say this, Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now his heart was hurting, and he was saying, Honey, You're so fixated on this thing. What about our relationship? I've given you a double portion. Don't I mean more to you than children? Am I just a means to an end? It was causing friction in their marriage. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give to your servant a son. Notice she wanted, she was very specific in her request. She didn't say, I just want a baby. She wanted a son. And that culture, that was a bigger deal. Not in this one. And every man should say "Amen." amen. Guys, I'm giving you an opportunity here to get some points here. It, uh... In that culture, it was a big deal to have a son. She said, if you will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. What she was saying is, Lord, I will dedicate him unto you as a Nazarite. He will be given unto you, uniquely consecrated, even to the point, what she was saying is this, God, if you will allow life to come through me, I don't need to even raise this thing. I'll give it to you. I'll give the fruit of my womb back to you to use any way you please. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Now you got to understand, you go into chapter two, and it's one of the most heartbreaking but poetic passages in scripture describing a backslidden condition. Samuel came out of barrenness and a backslidden religious system and he single-handedly became the hinge upon which God ushered in the greatest era in Israel's history. So we need to have great hope. You look around you what God's doing in the nation. I'm telling you, out of barrenness and a backslidden state, God can raise up prophets that can become the hinge people to change history. Israel's greatest hour came through the anointing on, on in Samuel's horn that he anointed King David. As she continued praying, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Eli lacked the discernment to even recognize a woman in intercession. He thought she was drunk. The next passage says it poetically says that. Eli had lost his eyesight, and the King James Version says, In air, the lamp of God was about to go out in the temple, and the word of the Lord was rare. A blind, backslidden priest who wouldn't correct his own sons who were profligate and were sleeping with the, the, the girls that... Uh, served at the temple, and they were robbing people who would come to bring their sacrifice to the Lord, and they would literally rob the Lord and the Lord and, and Eli would try to correct them, but he didn 't do anything about it, and it says that they didn 't receive it because it had become the lord 's will to kill them. Their sin was so great in the eyes of God that God was going to take them out, and God sent a prophet to Eli and said, the day, on the same day both of your sons will die and it will be a sign to you that I've removed you. It's a sobering thing. And in the midst of all that description, it says, but Samuel served before the Lord, comma, a boy in a linen ephod. Man, I love that. The hope of Israel was already in place. A little boy, playing priesthood but God had set him apart how was God able to accomplish that in such a backslidden hour of Israel's history what he did is he closed the womb of a woman who deeply desired to be used of God see you don't know if you're barren unless you've known intimacy I mean, I know that's obvious, but we need to understand that. Barrenness can only, you can only know it if you've known intimacy. A barren woman has to have been intimate with a man to realize her barrenness. She was a woman who knew her husband, but nothing was coming from it. There are a lot of believers who attend the same churches as their fellow believers. They they go to the same prayer meetings. They've applied themselves the same way. But God will withhold fruitfulness from them for a season. Precisely because he's trying to deal with something. There's a greater purpose in mind. I really believe that much of the barriers to Samuel becoming what he was called to be were taken care of in the intercessions of his mother before he was ever conceived. Samuel started much farther down the road than his peers because God withheld something from his mom so that her frustration would rise and that frustration became the fuel of her intercession. She began to lay hold of God and she began to cry out to God. She would fast and she would weep. But notice from the text, nothing happened until she took the vow. And the vow was, Lord, if you give me a child, I don't even have to raise it. Lord, I'm just asking, let life come through me and you can have the child. It's an amazing, amazing story. That's exactly what happened with Peninnah. Eli saw her mumbling and said, woman, you know, put away your drink. How long will you remain a drunk? She said, no, my Lord, you don't understand. I am am in grief. I've wanted a child. And he said, well, so be it unto you as, you know, let your prayer be answered. Just an off-the-cuff word from a backslidden priest and her faith latched a hold of it. It says they went home and in due season she conceived a child. And then her husband was worried. Because they went to, to worship and she said, I'm not going with you this year. He knew her vow. She said, I'm going to wait till the child is weaned and then I'm going to bring him to the temple, to the tent of meeting. And I'm going I'm to leave him there. He's going to be raised in the house of God. And Elkanah said, okay, just, if you read the text, it seems to insinuate Elkanah was worried she wouldn't follow through on her vow but she did. It's an amazing story. A woman who so longed to have a child, but God did such a work in her that she was willing to surrender the answer to her own prayer. Here's my point. This is what I feel like the Lord wants to say to us this morning. That there are times where believers will experience God-imposed barrenness in an area of our life. It's not because of a lack of intimacy. It's not because of a lack of faith. It's because God has a greater purpose for your life. He withholds from you what he will give to others easily. But the reason he does it is because he's wanting the accumulation of that heart cry and those intercessions because there's a greater purpose that he wants to bring through you. And we've gotta be so careful Remember what Alcana said to his wife? He said, Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? I believe that's one of the great temptations when we're suffering out of barrenness in our life, where there's an area of our life where we know, God, you made me for so much more. There's something you want to bring through my life. I'm not talking about just latching hold of someone else's dream. I'm, not ta- I'm talking about you know in your heart that there's something that God wants to use you for and you're not seeing any movement out of that thing. And the matter what you pray, other people are breaking into it and there's this frustration Elkanah came to her and said, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Essentially, isn't my love, isn't what we share enough? And there was a temptation to settle for this faulty consolation. You see, what had happened is God had provided provocation in her life to bring to the forefront her own barrenness, to highlight that area of her life. When God begins to do something somewhere else, we don't need to be jealous and and begrudge somebody else's blessing, but there are times when it should provoke a hunger within us, where there should be something within us that says, God, if you're gonna move there, move here. Lord, Lord, I'm asking you, feel it more there, but Lord, I'm asking you, do it here. There was this provocation that made her aware, more acutely aware of her own barrenness. And I find it interesting that she became very aware every time they would go to the tent to worship. And so she would cry out to the Lord and she refused to be consoled. The words of Rachel, what she told her husband, I, I can't imagine being her husband, she said, give me children or I die. He's like, I'm trying, woman. You know? But there was something within her that was saying, I need to give birth to something. There, there's a shared exchange here, that, an expression of our love that I want to give birth to. And that's really what intercession is. There's something of our life we want to give birth to that is an expression of us and God. And until that happens, there's a sense of barrenness within us. It looks different for all of us. But there's something of you God wants to birth into the earth. And there needs to be a hunger. And if you're finding that there's a sense of barrenness, then begin to cry out to him and realize that often God will withhold the natural processes because he has a greater purpose for what he's wanting to birth from us. I've told this story before, but years ago, I was, it was a Monday morning and I, I had slept in, I was just laying in bed and I grabbed my phone and I'm scrolling and I started reading the word and I'm reading about John the Baptist and how it says that John the Baptist, his, uh, his, his mom and dad had been praying for years. Now they're, she's beyond the childbearing age. He's an old man but he he grabs the lot the lot falls to him so he's the one that goes into the temple to offer the sacrifice and he he goes in there and an angel appears to him and the angel says I am Gabriel I stand in the presence of God and he's like he's scared spitless and the angel says your prayers have been heard I love that because I'm assuming, I might be wrong, he might be such a man of faith that he's still asking for a child even when they're beyond the childbearing years. That, that could be. But I'm assuming that he had prayed and prayed and gave up, but the prayers of yesteryear were still coming before the throne that those prayers never fell to the ground and God was still listening to those prayers. And now the time had come and the angel drops in and says, your prayers have been heard. Your wife is gonna be found with child. And he will be filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. It's an amazing story. And remember, you know, you got Elizabeth who's carrying John and Mary who's carrying, I mean, this, this is a great story. We don't have time because we got to eat chili. But I'm telling you, this is is a great story. You've got the older generation who knew intimacy but never had fruitfulness. You've got the younger generation who's a virgin womb who has never even known intimacy. And the spirit comes on the... Younger generation, six months after it's come on the older generation because the older generation is carrying something that's going to pave the way of what the younger generation is carrying. The John the Baptist in the elderly womb is going to prepare the way for the Lord that Mary's carrying. Now that'll preach. Another day, but that'll preach. And I'm telling you, there are are some of you who God is still wanting to awaken your womb. Some of you have said, hey, I've done my part. It's now time for the younger ones to step forward. Hey, we want to champion the next next generation. Matter of fact, I have sensed it in my heart these last number of months. There is a groundswell that's coming of this young generation stepping in and we're going to build a platform for for them to run. But you know what they're going to need? The wisdom of us gray hairs. Because something we carry is going to pave the way for what they carry. John the Baptist's message prepared the way for Jesus. So I'm reading that passage, in a, and it says, and he was filled with, his, with the Spirit from his mother's woman. And Mary walks in the room. She's got her little baby bump, and Elizabeth's got her big baby bump. And when Mary comes in, she says, how you doing, in Hebrew. Yeah, all of a sudden, Elizabeth, her baby jumped. And he was filled with the Spirit. And this is what I ask the Lord, God. Why don't you always do it that way? I mean, wouldn't that solve a lot of problems? If every mama carried a baby that was spirit-filled from the womb, wouldn't that just solve a lot of problems? I wish I'd have been spirit-filled from the womb. It would have saved my mom and dad a lot of heartache. And I just kind of said it out loud. I didn't expect an answer, but the Lord spoke to me. And he told me, he said, it was... The years of barrenness that paved the way so what she carried could enter in early into something because the mom and dad had to wait so long. They entered in late so their baby could enter in early. The previous generation had to wait much longer so that the next generation could get in earlier. And it was because of this God imposed barrenness. There are times where God will withhold something from us because he's wanting the accumulative cry of our heart. The frustration and the prayers and the fasting to ascend before the throne because he's doing something in the spirit. He's paving the way. He's removing things so that they can enter in early. And there needs to be something in the heart of every gray hair, even if you color your hair, every true, you know, where, where the color at the roots, if you have gray roots, there needs to be a cry within your heart, God, pick me. Lord, I am willing to pay the price for the next generation. I will labor longer if they can enter in earlier. And so I was meditating on that in bed, and I thought, that is fascinating, Later on that day, I got in my car, drove to central Nebraska. I'm preaching at a ministry school that night. And I get there, and I, I taught, and then I'm just praying over the students, prophesying. And, and I'm standing before this one guy praying, and all of a sudden, that came back to my mind, and I said, I need to share something with you. I said, just this morning, I was laying in bed, and the Lord began to talk to me about how he will at times impose barrenness because he's clearing the way later in life for that individual. And I, I explained that principle and he looked at me, his eyes got real big, he said, that is so crazy you would share that. He said, my mom and dad tried to have a kid so many, so long, they couldn't get pregnant and I ended up being the child of their latter years. I... I, I, I they conceived me in their elderly years. I was like a miracle. And I told them, on the authority of what God had told me that morning listen, you're starting the race much farther down the road than your peers. There is a holy obligation that you carry because your mom and dad's prayers accumulated and they paid a price. God withheld something so he could clear the way for you so that you could run hard. There were were battles most people have to fight themselves that were fought for you before conception so that you could run hard. And I'm telling you that some of you, there's there's areas of your life that have been barren. Let me quote to you the prophecy from Isaiah. Sing, O barren woman. Sing, O barren woman you who have no children, because more are the children of the barren womb than she who has many children. I could, based on the word of God, add to that prophecy, and great are the children of the barren womb. Because all through scripture, we see these unique individuals popping up that were heroes in the faith, that were the products of barren wombs. And I'm telling you that some of you, there has been a God-ordained withholding in an area of your life, not because God has something against you, but because he has something great for you. Yeah. Amen. And he wants you to not become embittered or discouraged or, or succumb to the faulty consolations that you are loved. And believe me, you are. But more so, what he wants to do is birth something through your life of significance. The very area of our pain is often the area where he wants to give us the greatest breakthrough. You've heard it preached. Your test becomes a testimony. Your mess becomes a message. It's the area of your pain. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. I want us to close with this song. Song that they sang. I couldn't believe it this morning because I really was wrestling with what to preach on this morning because Lou and Dean messed me up this morning. I, I shouldn't have listened to that message and I got so rocked, but this last song pulled me back in to what I feel like the Lord is saying to us this morning. Some of you, there's an area of barrenness, there's an area of pain. You feel like there's, there's been a lack of breakthrough. You know is God's will. This is, this, it's not God's will for that thing to remain a fixture in your life. But no matter how much you've pounded on the door, it seems like it hasn't moved. And I'm telling you, it's because there's a greater purpose for your breakthrough than just your own pleasure. And believe me, God cares about that. But there's something greater for the fruit of your womb of faith in that area. So I'm gonna ask you to go ahead and stand. And let's... Let's go ahead and sing that song. Uh, go ahead and stand, and I want you just to, to just receive this as a prophetic word this morning. Sing, O barren woman, sing, O broken man. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com slash give.